Welcome to the REI Foundation Podcast, where we cover all the steps and strategies to make your real estate dreams a reality. Now your hosts, Jason and Peely. Hi, everybody. Welcome again to the REI Foundation Podcast with Jason and Peely. Today, we have a very special guest, John Azar. Um, John hey, is... <laughs> Hi <Poor> there. John. <laughs> <laughs> so John is the owner of, with his brother, is the owner of Capstone Property Management. He and his brother have over 5,500 units. Is that correct, John? We manage that much, but we don't. We own about a little over 4,000. Um, our management company, Capstone, um, which I'm not an owner of, just to clarify, I am, I am a, a, a managing member of Mac, Mac Venture yes. Partner, but not, but not Capstone. Um, Capstone is part of our company, but I'm not, I'm not an owner of that company. Um, and, uh, and we, are, we do manage a little over 5,000 units, but that is through our management company, which is Capstone. Uh, Mac Venture Partners own about a little over 4,000, or now it's going to be about 4,300 with this recent acquisition. Awesome. Wow. Well, before we start talking about the your most recent acquisition, why don't we get to know a little bit about your background? Yeah, so John, we always we always love to start with just get a little more context of how and why you got started in real estate. Uh, well, the both both my brother and I did did not necessarily start out in real estate. My brother started out in technology. My brother, Tony Azar, who's the founder of the company, um, started out in um, launching a technology company back in the, back in the eighties when computers were first uh, kind of getting proliferated and uh, grew that company <clears throat> to, to a, you know, about almost a hundred million dollar company. And then he sold it uh, back in uh, late nineties when the sort of, uh, um, the, the, the sort of the crash happened or the bubble bursted and uh, mm-hmm. um, you know, probably not at the best time, probably two year, two or three years after where the company should have been sold, but uh, it is what it is. You know, it's, you kind of, you know, you, you learn from your mistakes and failures and you move on. Um, and then in 2002, 2003 opened a, um, a real estate company more focused on single family flips. So essentially the start in the, in the, in the real estate sort of that for him, sort of then single family flips uh, from 2000, which he concentrated on from 2002, 2003 until about 2007, um, accumulating at one point, 2006, 2007, had a portfolio of about 60 homes that was flipping in one year. So um, single family homes. And then uh, seeing the the sort of the turn in the market in 2007, got out of that end of it propitiously and um, went into multifamily, uh, bought our first apartment complex in 2007. Um, for me, uh, it, it was a kind of a, you know, early on, it was a parallel track. I, Tony is my, my old, older brother. So he was, uh, you know, we always had a, had a, had an interesting relationships growing up. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, we, I, you know, I worked for him. I think he fired me a couple of times in the past. <laughs> maybe, maybe more than twice. Uh, <laughs> I don't think you've actually ever fired your brother. 
Uh, technically, no, but <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh, I, think, I think I may have quit a couple of times. You might fire yeah. me. I think I, I think Ryan's quit a couple of times. Yeah, that's that's true. Uh, how it goes. <laughs> so we know that some harsh words are exchanged. You know, I yeah. just you know, how it is with brothers. But uh, um, but at the end of the day, we 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 loved each other. We figured at some point we're going to come back together, and uh, we we did at some point later. But in the same time, we're having sort of parallel tracks. I was in finance and investments for a long time in, in Boston. I, um, I had my own um, real estate development consulting company um, after I left Morgan Stanley uh, with some partners of mine that we did uh, uh, development consulting for large-scale mixed-use development. We had projects in uh, Philadelphia, New York, London, um, and Miami, and, and Boston. And um, did that for a few years, and then in 2007, uh, the, the market, um, uh, yeah, took a, took a, yeah, took a pooper in the bed, and uh, yeah, we pretty much uh, went to went to zilch as far as uh, as far as the projects concerned. So we we had to get day jobs, um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, but uh, and then uh, yeah, and then in 2013, 2012, we sort of um, uh, my brother and I realized that we could probably do better together and combine forces and uh, it's been he was trying to tell me to to come down and join that side of the the business for a while and like i said it took me until 2013 to get convinced and it took me another year after that to convince my wife to come down here (laughs) (laughs) so right now you're in north carolina north carolina in charlotte amazing but well you talk a lot and i think it it resonates is that yeah you have these setbacks and but you let these setbacks be growth parts and maybe they sidetrack you but you get yourself back on track and you find better ways and new ways and that's that's a lot about the point here is that that you're going to have missteps in this business especially in many businesses and every businesses and you just let, let that derail you or just the thought of it derail you you really never get get yourself going and and a lot of the a lot of the listeners here, they're just trying to find their way to get themselves started, uh, but they're always worried about what could possibly go wrong. So how have you basically set your mind that, that you, you, okay, you have these things that catch you off, off track, but you write the ship and you move forward. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. First of all, anything and everything can go wrong. And, uh, and you, you have to be sort of mentally prepared for that. And it's okay for, for things to go wrong because, you know, unless you try, you're, you're not, you're not going to know. Um, you know, I've, I've had a couple of failed businesses. Uh, we tried it for a while. I did the, the, my development company, the, had another consulting company that didn't go well. I had a, uh, a stint in venture capital that, that didn't necessarily work out that well. So we learn from our failures and, and we just have to sort of, as long as we're learning something, we take some tidbits out of what we're doing and, and try to improve the process um, and kind of maybe truncate that, that Delta failure somehow or another. Um, and the next time we do it, that will be, that, that, that would, that's great. That, I mean, that's the best you could hope for. Um, and I think my brother, Tony would say the same thing. I mean, we, unless you take that chance, um, you, you know, you can't, you can't, you don't know what the rewards will be. Um, I've always been a, a huge fan of failure and, and kind of learning from failures and learning to really uh, having failure as a, as a teaching tool uh, rather than just a, just a lesson learned. Um, in, in fact, I love failure so much. I'm giving a TED talk about it in a couple of months. So it's, awesome. Uh, when's the, cool. do you know when the TED talk is, uh, is going to go live? 
Uh, October thirteenth is when wow. I'm doing the TED Talk. Yeah, October thirteenth. I'm gonna I'm gonna write yeah. that on my calendar. That's very cool. That's gonna be very exciting. Yeah, yeah congratulations on that. And, yeah, uh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, failure. I mean, it is just a, it's such a topic because people, you know, I've done it myself. I, I find ways that I ha I have the thought of something going wrong, talk me out of actually proceeding, but you have to take that hurdle. And you, you, you usually, when you, when you, get yourself to take that hurdle, you realize that even the failure that you were thinking of, you never actually have that bad of a failure or, you know, it, it's always 10 times worse in your head than it actually happens. Even when it's at its worst. And a lot of times you still, it's still in your mind, you still had it pictured worse. And, uh, so it's just getting over that hurdle and that, yeah, that's incredible. So, well, like for instance, yeah. I, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm afraid to fail. And, uh, you know, I, I try, like, I try my best and I like, I get down on myself every time. Like I have like the, the setback, what, what would you tell people like me who just, who, who sometimes like don't take that first step because they're just too afraid. Yeah. I mean, just, just go ahead and what I would tell you and anybody else is, is, is go ahead and embrace the failure that you're going to, that you might have, or you might, that might sit you back, you know, just, just, just be mentally prepared for that. I mean, so as long as you know that you're going to have, just, just make sure you don't hurt yourself. <laughs> I mean, if you have, if you have your health, you know, there's, there's, there's a difference between, you know, you know, failure or, or the fear of failure and, and, and real danger. Now, most of the time, most of us don't feel, don't have to face real dangers. Thankfully, we're not, yeah. we're not going out there trying to dodge bullets. We're not going out, you know, out there trying to, you know, right. traverse a mountain that we might fall and, and actually, you know, crack our neck. So these are real dangers. These are, these are, these are, these are real dangers and, and, and fear or caution of those dangers is warranted. But most of the dangers that most of us feel are, 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 are really, you know, almost mental dangers. They're not really, uh, at the end of the day, they're not going to leave you maimed. They're not going to leave you, uh, you know, with a, with some kind of physical malady there, there, they might, they might hurt your ego, but they're not going to leave you maimed. Uh, they might hurt your pocket also, but, uh, at the end of the day, if you have your health, you should be able to pick yourself back up and try again. Um, great. great advice. No. Yeah. Very Thank good you. advice. It's really just a mindset. So talking about mindsets. Um, so you guys were in the single family, you, you've done a whole bunch of different things in, in real estate. How did you switch your mindset to go into large multifamilies? Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, first of all, there's a the few things that are related to multifamily that, that makes them such a, for me and, and, and for my brother, we, we love that, that class or that asset class for investments. Um, the safety is number one, um, both from an owner or sponsor perspective and from an investor perspective, the safety of multifamilies are, uh, you know, bar none, one of the, one of the best out there as far as, as far as the classes of real estate, classes of investments in general. I mean, I can compare and, and go against the beta of, of multifamily investments against any other class of investments, such as equity and stocks, bonds. I mean, that's my background. So every time I get in touch with, you know, an investor and they try to talk to me about what the, what the risk factors and the beta factors between sure. real estate and, and stocks, I win that argument 
bar none. I mean, I love those arguments because I, it's not even an argument. I'm like, okay, well, you know, this is, this is not even a fair fight. It's like, you know, you're bringing a knife to a gunfight. So it's, it's, so have, uh, have that argue, yeah, give us argument key, with me right now. Points. Yeah. yeah. We'd love to know some key points. If, you know, say Peely was saying that she wants to go out there and, uh, and invest in the, um, diversified portfolio and stocks, bonds, mutual funds, as, as a lot of people decide to, to start out investing. Yeah, sure. So, yeah. So, so, so the average, and this is, these are something you can, you know, obviously, uh, fact check me on, but, uh, the, the average return of a, of a, like say a 20 year track in, in, in a stock market in the S and P or Dow Jones, uh, the average return for an investor, uh, in that 20 years is, is going to be approaching anywhere between 10 to, to 12%, uh, 13% returns. That's what average investors usually do in, in the stock market and that, and that, you know, in a stable, in a stable market environment. Um, meaning that you're going to have some ups and downs in, in, the, in the stock market. The same average returns for, for, for that in a, in a multifamily setting, um, you would have probably turned your portfolio three to four times, but probably made close to probably 60% of your money, 60% uh, returns on your money uh, during that time. So, I mean, you know, I, you don't have to be a, a rocket scientist to figure out that the difference between 15% average return and 60% average returns is, is, is a lot. Well, um, that, just, just, just on a return factor, it's just on the returns. Now let's, let's, let's approach it from a, from a, from a safety, uh, a risk standpoint. Um, you know, your, your beta on, on equities and bonds is, is, is high. Um, it depends what, what you're investing in, what your appetite for, you know, how aggressive you want to be. Um, your beta on equity is really high. Your beta on, 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 on venture capital or private equity, if you want to be more adventurous is going to be sky high. Um, your beta on, on make multifamily real estate is is about as low as you can get because you're not only investing in a class that's backed by real assets. That's that's the first thing. Um, it's 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 also backed by a um, diversity of tenants. So you're not really investing in, in an you're investing in an asset that has let's say an average of 200 tenants in it. Let's say even say 100 tenants in it. Uh, so you you know you you, you take an economic hit of 10 percent. 15%. So you lose maybe 15% of your tenants. You still still have 85% occupancy, uh, you know, or, or 80, 80 some percent occupancy. It's not that hard to make up the other five or 10% get back up to the 90% occupancy. So, you know, you're always going to have that stream of income that is diversified by the amount of tenants that you have in your, in your property. Um, so, you know, so, so returns and safety, I mean, uh, you know, I'll, 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 <laughs> done <laughs> no argument <laughs> it's perfect I'll send you the paperwork to sign soon and I'll, it's, it's an email <laughs> I, I was just having this talk and it was actually across different sizes of uh, of multifamily where someone was investing in, in a four family and he was telling me why um, we, we just had a uh, we just acquired a, a 94 unit and the uh, and how the 94 unit was so much more risky than the four unit. And I said, well, actually, it, sure, maybe just based on size, you can in your mind you're thinking it's more risky. But now, I have. Uh, more economies of scale to my favor. I can hire staff that I can afford with the property. If I'm now, if I have one person move out, you know, maybe I'm 3% vacant, 2% vacant. If you have one person move out, you're 25% vacant. And the, right. 
now if I go here and I try and get leverage, people are looking at an asset that's performing. It's performing based by the numbers. And you're, you are having to get this based on your track record, your personal financials and a lot of other points. And, uh, and I was trying to make it to the point where it's just all in the numbers, but as you add up the numbers, you have so many economies of skill that work in your favor that you really have to take a look at it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. The economies, the, the economies of scale are definitely is what helps in the multifamily. That's, that's, that goes back to my, what I just mentioned about the risk factor of, of, of diversification of the tenants. Um, you know, you have a three or four family, you're, you know, you, like you said, one, one tenant moved out and you, you take a 30% hit, yeah. um, you know, 10 tenants move out of a hundred units. You're still at 90% out. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Well, so for since we're talking about sort of like the differences between the two and there's a lot of investors that don't do the mind shift into large multifamilies because they can't handle it we've actually been talking to a lot of single family investors that are just like how do you what i just i don't know what to do like how do you how do you start when do you start like what do i have to what books do i have to read so what are some actionable steps that investors can take to get into this type of investing yeah, I mean, it, 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 the, the, the hurdle of buying the first large deal, large scale multifamily deal it, it are, are real. Uh, they, these are not just psychological because they, they, you do have to, there are money factors involved that you do have to secure. Um, so, so, yeah, it's not just a, the psychological you know, hurdle point of actually getting to, to the first big multifamily deal. Um, you need money. I mean, so at the end of the day, you, you, know, you have to secure your financing. From a debt perspective, you have to secure your financing from an equity equity perspective as well. So if, if you don't have the equity for your for your first deal, then you syndicate it, obviously, which is which is what we do on a with all our deals. But but you know, for your first deal, um, even if it's a small multifamily deal, let's call it 60, 70, 80 units, maybe maybe it's I don't know, let's call it two million dollars. Um, you know, yeah, you can finance maybe up to you know, 75% LTV or, uh, you know, something like that. But so you, you, you can probably finance up to mill and a half, mill six, but you still have to come up with three or 400,000 bucks out of your, out of your pocket. And if you don't have that, then that's a hurdle. So you have to, you have to, you have to, then you have to syndicate that 20% or 25% um, equity slug to, to investors, you know, maybe your first deal, you do it, uh, you know, what, what I would call in the you know, venture capital world, you know, angel round, you know, friends and family round. You just kind of go around and, and get uh, uh, you know, friends and family funding or uh, you know, somehow or another cobble together, you know, that, 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 that 20% or 25% that you need. And that's why I advise sometimes keep your first deal smaller so it can be more manageable. Um, you know, it's, it's don't look at it from, oh, my God, I got to buy 200 you know, unit or I got about 150 unit for my first deal to make it worthwhile. Mm-hmm. You, know, take, you know, you know, how do you eat a whale? Take a, take one bite at a time. So just, mm-hmm. just, just, you know, take it one step at a time, baby steps and, and, and you'll get there. Well, that's a great actionable yeah. step. Just put the word out there that this is what you're doing to your family and friends and see if there's anybody interested. You never know. I mean, people are sitting on their 401ks and and everything. And I would love to know more. So I think the first multifamily investment was in 2007. Were you working with your brother at that time or, or was that before you came onto the team? I, I wasn't, this was pure, purely my brother. I, I was not, I mean, it was, it was, uh, he, he started that in 2007 buying a, a, a smaller, I believe our first deal was, uh, uh, close to 90 units, 80, 80 some units. Yeah. Five units. That was the first, first deal that he bought. 
Um, so it's, it's, it's small. I mean, now we don't buy anything under 150 units, but it's just our minimums are 150 units. So the first one you were actually involved with, what can you tell us? What did you remember about, about coming in there and now you're buying an apartment building, even though maybe your brother had put together that track, I'm sure you still had your learning curve as you jumped into the business. Yeah. I mean, for me, the, 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 probably the due diligence process is, um, is something that was that something I had to learn initially on, um, because you do have a lot of due diligence involved in, um, in, in, in buying a multifamily more so than people think if, if you want to buy it right, at least, which is what you should be doing in every transaction. Because if you don't buy it right, you're, you're really kind of missing out and you're screwing yourself for the future. So, uh, we've, you know, something my brother always says, if you, you, you buy it right, that's how you make your money. You buy it, you buy, you make your money when you first buy. And, uh, and he's right. It's, uh, you know, when you, um, when we look at an asset, uh, we have to figure out all the things that could go wrong and, and try to sort of contradict ourselves and, or, or prove ourselves wrong that they won't go wrong. Um, but so in that process, the first asset that I, that I, that I was involved in, um, was a hundred and 150 unit asset, 148 unit asset, um, in Greensboro, North Carolina. And, um, we, uh, uh, the, the, the due diligence on it, we, we went and looked at it first. Um, when we're, we're trying to size up the financing, went back to the drawing board, did the numbers, uh, did the, did the breakdown of the underwriting, um, then went back again and, and looked at it a, um, a second time we made the offer. And then when the offer was accepted during the due diligence period, um, and usually what we do with every deal, not just this deal, but with every deal, before we go to a, um, before our due diligence period is over and we go, our, our money goes hard. Um, and, uh, we have a, what, you know, we do an unit inspection right before we, we you know, go towards that, 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 um, a sort of uh, runway to closing. Uh, we do a unit by unit walkthrough and we walk every single unit of, of the asset that we buy. Um, and that was, that was definitely a learning, learning curve for me. Well, you know, it, it just, just, purely from a fascination standpoint of, of actually having to, to walk 150 units, uh, 145 units or so. And, uh, it's, it's, you know, the the human elements is, is more obviated when you, when you do that, because, you know, you're, these are, you know, real people that you're renting to. These are, you know, is you're owning a community of, of lives essentially. Yeah. So, I just think you're walking uh, through 148 some lives. Yeah, that's exactly right. You're, you're walking through wow. 148 lives, you know, families, kids, dogs, lots of dogs. you you touch on a a really nice point about just the the need to just buy right and that that's where it all starts when we're we're right now we're in this time where we're it's really hot you know things are overinflated people are buying it at crazy numbers and and to the point where you'll see people buying with the intention that three or four years out they'll be able to to do whatever they're going to do to improve the value of the property. How do you, how do you find properties that maybe like the one you just closed on? How are you still finding value in a market like this? Well, we're not, I mean, we, we sometimes, we, we took a step back recently, uh, back in November, December, we decided strategically to step out of the market because we felt it was way too hot, um, okay. for us to sort of keep going and pushing and just buying it 
we we don't have the attitude of buy at all costs. Um, yeah. Some people some people may, and some people could afford that. We can't. We don't want to. We have too good of a reputation with our investors to um, to risk that at, at, at sort of a buy at all cost uh, attitude. And uh, we decided in November December that we're going to take a step out of the market, and we did. Uh, we didn't buy again until just now. So um, you know, we just this deal that we just closed on is our first deal in 2017, which is, you know, we're now in what, almost August. Um, So it's by this time last year, um, we had already probably closed on six deals, five deals. So in in 2016, in 2016 alone, we closed on almost eight deals. So um, seven deals, 2017, you're looking at our, just like I said, we just closed on our first deal. So so strategically, we, we made a decision consciously to kind of step out of the market and just kind of let the let the crazies you know duke it out between each other and for, yeah. for us to kind of uh, not not be in it. But um, you know, a, a lot of the market overheating, I think, is a, a largely I hate to say, a largely due to institutional players who uh, their capital, their equity slugs are a lot cheaper than than ours. Uh, meaning that our equity costs us more because our investors expect a lot more. So our investors expectation for us and for a lot of you know small to medium sized players, um, you know, they're they're they want to get eight anywhere between eight to ten percent cash on cash per year. Um, mm-hmm. that's that's the expectation out there. And 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 then beyond the the the, the cash on cash or prep rate, they're expecting their RR to be in the realm of, you know, 20, maybe at, at the very least, you know, mid to upper teens. Um, you have an issue, you have a lot of institutional players, a lot of funds, a lot of endowments uh, that are tied, their money tied to endowments or funds. Uh, their capital is, is a lot cheaper. They're, they'd be, they'd be happy with, you know, 4%, 5% uh, cash on cash and maybe nine, 10% IRR. So therefore their, their appetite for paying a lot more is much, much higher than us. Um, yeah. And, and it causes, we can't, we just can't afford that kind of cost of capital. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah well, thank you for that explanation. Yeah, that's great. And, and we, we've seen it We're we're a much smaller track, but we just the same competition level where, uh, it, it just, nothing makes sense. The numbers don't make sense. And to, and to have that, that for us, we do the same thing where we syndicate. And, uh, the most important thing is that you are taking on other people's money. And that was one of the biggest things that I, I had to realize when we first started this is that the most important thing is people are entrusting their investments with us to be able to do this. And, and the most important thing for us is the, the return of capital and that, that really stands out. So we were, it, it says a lot when you guys brought eight deals last, last year, it sounds like you've been on a pretty big buying spree for the last couple of years. It must've been a, a pretty hard thing to do to just turn off the faucet and just say, okay, we're going to sit there for a little bit, but that's, that's incredible. It was, it was. And, and, uh, I mean, we, believe me, we stayed busy. We had a refinancing, we kind of recapped part of portion of our portfolio in the beginning of the year, um, about five assets recap, uh, deal that we did earlier this year. Um, so it, it, we definitely stayed busy. We didn't, we, we did not stay busy, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, just, just to go back to your point about, about investor, um, money and safeguarding and being a sort of that fiduciary, um, guard for your investors money, a lot of times those bigger institutional guys and pension funds have a uh, investment mandate that they have to, that they have, they have to actually deploy their assets or their capital at a certain amount of time too. It's not just, so it's not, it's not just the, 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 the rate of the returns that they, that their appetite has a lot more of its tolerance for it's, it's the deployment of capital. So a lot of times 
they have investment mandates say you have to deploy, you know, 50 million or 100 million bucks worth of capital by, you know, August of the fiscal year. So they have to put the money out there, whether they want to or not, whether they get 4% returns, 2% returns on it, they have to put the money out there. Otherwise, they'll lose their, their investment mandate from wherever they're getting their, their money from. So that's another reason why a lot of those bigger institutional guys are coming in and scooping up things that they would have never scooped up a couple of two or three years ago. I mean, huh. you know, through two or three years ago, we, a lot of the, you know, uh, second tier, third tier markets that we're playing in, um, you know, some of the guys from LA and New York that, that are, uh, would have never looked at second tier, third tier markets. And that's 150, 160, 170, uh, door portfolio, um, now they're scooping them up all the time because their returns are there because they're, when they look at their markets, their home markets, whether it's West coast to LA or, or New York, yep. um, their cap rate is like 3%. You know, yeah. mm-hmm. cap rate in Boston are below 3%. In New York, they're sometimes they're one, you know, so they come to markets like the Southeast where we are, uh, even Midwest. And they look at cap rates that are in the six, 7% range like what? Like, yes, that, please. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's crazy. How much more do you want? Yeah, yeah. yeah exactly. <laughs> my wallet wider. Exactly. So yeah. when you get into these properties here, I, I guess on the standpoint, I, I, would I assume that uh, Capstone, the management arm, manages all of your properties? Or, or that's right. It- yeah, Capstone manages all our property. Aside from properties that we own uh, that are not in our core market. Um, we have some properties in Texas and we have some properties in Michigan that are not considered our core market. And these are managed by third party managers. What are some things on a, um, a more property level that you like to do right when you take over a property to, to ultimately just, uh, is it based on property or is there, there are certain properties that you're always looking for the same kind of repositioning tools or tactics to take into each property? Uh, well, we, when we take over each property, we have a, we created something a couple of years ago that, uh, we've, been very thankful for creating and it's it's called the transition team we have a transition team created now uh and we're trying to duplicate that for every for for more um our transition team is tasked with essentially taking over a property and and kind of having no hiccups in in integrating the property into our portfolio so um to help that kind of seamless integration it, it it and and without because sometimes when you take over a property, you have to either let go of the staff or change staff or change management or change the work crew or change the, um, you know, all, all this sometimes help the integration of the property makes it a hurdle to, to get over. So sometimes it takes you two to, two to four months to integrate a property. And sometimes you have to reallocate personnel out of your, out of your current properties or maybe your head office. Uh, and two or three years ago, we made a decision to go ahead and create what's called a transitional team. And their job is essentially just to go around, and make sure that our these new assets are being seamlessly integrated into our portfolio without having any lag time um, between. So, so, so truncate that learning curve uh, for us to integrate the asset. We do better when when we find an asset that the management staff uh, is willing to work with us and continue to work with us, and and we want to work with them. Um, so, um, it, it, that's a perfect scenario for us. When we take over a property, the, 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 the staff there is, is great. They're on board their icon, you know, they, they, they fit in the uh, mold of the, the employees we want to keep. And, um, that makes it a much, much easier of a transition. 
That's great. Amazing. Amazing. So let's, uh, let's sort of like, we're going to sort of still follow the same thought, but I want to go back to the fact that you kind of, you had, you, you weren't at, you weren't um, acquiring more properties this year. You just acquired that one property. So in this year, like um, what, what like significant impact is your business dealing with right now? Like growing your team? Like what did you do this year instead of like going into and buying more properties? What did you do to grow your business? Um, so we focused more on internal, internal structures, internal processes. Um, again, we, in the beginning of the year, we did their recap portfolio, uh, recap transaction with five of our assets that gave us uh, a little bit more liquid capital to, to sink back into the business. Uh, we kind of did a, um, uh, restructure inside. We had to make sure that we have the right personnel in place. We launched a fund. The fund itself took a took a long time to, to kind of structure and launch. And um, the, the the fund itself just launched uh, recently, about a month ago or so. We were finally left ready to kind of um, go out and start going out into marketplace. I'm I'm probably going to start traveling in September, October to start raising funds for it. So uh, that took a while. And in order for that fund to to really uh, be impactful and and for us to uh, uh, to be sitting in front of uh, capital sources that will that, that will uh, take us seriously is is to have this the right internal structure and that's what we had to kind of focus on the first few months of the year is to make sure that our internal structures are are, are right where we want them to be and and they are poised to um, be able to, to scale up to, to where we we, we can um, so that's what we took the first few months of the year we really kind of took a uh, almost like a self-reflection and uh, look for our, into ourselves and, and kind of decided what what we need to change internally in order to be ready for the next stage of growth. That's great. Yeah. I'm sure uh, I'd love to hear more about the fun, but that would be a whole nother show. So, so we'll yeah, say yeah. that for another one. Yeah, no, we don't want to do that. Yeah. But uh, it, in terms of yourself, just in real estate, cause you, you've, you've tackled a lot of businesses. Uh, you, you found your successes. What, it, what is something that's happened real estate specific that maybe has been a, a setback, but it's turned out to be a huge learning experience from you for you. Um, yeah, I, you know, from a, from a real estate standpoint, it's the, 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 the setback is, is, is always the time. Uh, I mean, time, time is always something you underestimate for anything that it takes to, to get accomplished. Um, you go into it obviously all, you know, um, wide eyed and ready to, to take it on and you think it's going to get done in, you know, 30 days and it takes three months or six months or nine months. Uh, for, for me that adjusting, tampering that time expectations, um, have been probably the, the, the biggest thing I've had to, I've had to learn. I'm a, um, I usually, I'm, you know, I'm a person that, that likes to, you know, if I get an idea, I want to get it done right in there. You know, if I have an actionable plan, I want to set it in place and, and let's get it done. And I want to start seeing results. And if I don't, I start to get frustrated and say, well, what am I doing wrong? What, what do I need to change? And that's something I had to tamper, um, you know, in the past couple of years is, is that, uh, I, I don't want to point to a specific project per se, but just in general, that this business will, will demand more out of you and it will, uh, and it, and it will take longer than you think it will. Um, so, um, so just kind of tamper your timing expectation. It, it's okay to have, you know, to, to go after things aggressively, but, but, 
Uh, if, if things take longer, it's okay. And yeah. I'm still saying that to myself. Sometimes <laughs> I, I, this is, this is a, a current problem, not a, not a past problem. This is a current issue that for, for my own self-reflection and growth. Oh, I'm going gonna, gonna to make a plaque out of what you just said for both Jason and I, because sometimes we're, we're such like, like you said, we put, we put plans into action and we want results. We want results the next day. And sometimes we don't wait long enough for those results to happen. And we switch gears and the results never happen because the gears keep on switching. So yeah. that's, that's great, great advice. Thank you. Thank you yeah, so much you. for that. It's, it's tough to do with people who are, you know, have fast thinking, fast thoughts, or, you know, I, I, it's, 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 it's almost like speaking to someone who's, talks very slow and who articulate their thoughts very slow. You know, it's, it's, it's the same frustration where you, you know, you, you're having a conversation with someone and you're already on their next sentence before they're finishing their first sentence. I'm like, okay, let's, let's, let's get it on. I already know your next thought. Why don't you just skip over the next thought and give me the spot after that? Because I already know what you're going to say. Yeah. Well, let's talk about switching gears. We're going to switch gears on you again. So what is your big why? The big why? Mm-hmm. What's the your big why? why? Like, why do you do this? Why are you in real estate? Why, why big multifamilies? Why spend all this time working? Why? Um, well, first of all, it doesn't feel like working for me. It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, if you do something that you love and you're passionate about, it shouldn't feel like working. Um, you get up in the morning, you, you know, you do your thing, you come into your office or whatever you need to do, um, it should feel like something that you're meant to do. Or I, you know, I hate to say it sound quirky, but it sounds like it, it, it should be something that you, when you wake up and you start doing it it, it, it feels right. It feels like something that you're almost like the work of a priest or something, you know, it's, uh, it, 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 it feels like you're doing something right for your life and for, and I don't want to say for humanity, but you know, at the end of the day, you, you should have your work be impactful um, somehow or another. And um, you know, for, for me, the, the business aspect itself is, uh, you know, I want to grow, I want to grow a legacy for, for the, you know, my family. I want to grow a legacy for the, the extended family. Um, and I want to, I want to have a hand in that. I, you know, we, we all want to have something to leave behind um, whether it's the, it's the, it's the, uh, the, the execution of the business or whether it's the actual monetary value of the business. Um, but, you know, I'd like my, my son someday to have something to point to and say, you know, my dad built this or, um, you know, or for him to maybe work on someday uh, if he wants to. But uh, so, so I yeah. and I think the same for my brother, we all, we're, we're, we're all trying to grow this business to be a legacy business. Um, and a lot of business owners, I think will, will say the same thing. They want to kind of leave something for the next generation. Nice. That's great. Wow. So in regards to now you're, so right now you're doing the fun. So, so we have that in the, in the immediate future is what you're growing to. Where do you see the, the business, your business with yourself, your brother, you know, Mac moving towards in the next five years, where, where's, where's a goal in in that next five years that you see yourself looking to achieve? Uh, well, so our next inflection point is going to be 10,000 units. So we're, we're already at that inflection point of 5,000. We actually will might surpass 5,000 next month because we're looking at a huge transaction now. So as far as ownership is concerned, so the next inflection point really for us is 10,000 units. And that's what I'm saying. The next, 
the next three to four years, my goal is to is to get us to that ten thousand unit frame. Um, the and then the, you know and then onwards to the next inflection point, which is going to be probably sixteen, seventeen thousand units, something like that. Um, I mean, my my hope for for the longer term, maybe ten years from now, is for us to be um, yeah, a, a a player that are that that is that is owning and, and running about anywhere between twenty five to thirty thousand units. Um, and, um, uh, you know, whether we diversify into something else, uh, five years from now, and it may not, we may not wait, you know, 10 years, we, you know, maybe we can diversify into other, uh, other living, um, aspects of real estate, such as, um, you know, cool living, um, or maybe student housing. I, I, we, we, we're, we're usually very, very meticulous and deliberate when we make a move into either a new market or a new asset class. And we we take our time into exploring that asset class and um, seeing you know studying it really well before going into it. But um, um, cool living is really fascinating to me, and and um, but I just have to do a lot more homework on it before we kind of step into it. What was it that you said? I, I missed it. Cool. Co co living. Co living. Ah. Yeah. Co living. Yeah. Interesting. I've, I've seen I've seen write ups on that. It's a, it's I mean it kind of takes takes the idea of like extended family living sort of like having a, like the large space and like different people living in like one huge space. Is that what yeah, it's, it's like, it's like co-working. I mean, uh, yeah. I'm sure you know the concept of co-working spaces. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so same, same concept. It's more, you know, for communal, communal living spaces. Living. Yes. So you're, you're offering more of a communal living space where um, the renters will share their common space with other renters in the area. So, um, but not necessarily from a, almost like a roommate's situation, mm -hmm. the, the whole building or, you know, it, it usually works better for uh, medium to high rise buildings because it doesn't work as well with garden style apartments, garden style mm -hmm. apartments. It's hard to, it's hard to make a living situation out of, but it, it, it's a much better situation when you have a mid to high rise buildings. Um, you have a situation where you're offering tenants, let's say on, on the first, on the same floor, maybe you have, uh, each floor will have its own common area, um, common kitchen, common living room, common, um, um, whatever. Um, they'll, maybe they'll all still have their private bathrooms, but the, but the living areas will be, will be all common. So it kind of creates a, that communal living space. Um, it worked, it works really well from what I've seen in uh, major metro areas like, uh, Boston, New York, um, LA, uh, San Francisco, uh, San Francisco has a, has a, a, a huge demand for co-living spaces now simply because of the cost of real estate is yeah. so prohibitive for, yes. for people to have, uh, you know, their own. Yeah. So, um, and, and it's, and it's moving towards that sort of trend where humanity in general is looking for more sort of community interaction and, 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 and community, um, community living. So, um, uh, so I think it, it's going to move towards, towards something that, a trend that that uh, that is going to be more popular, you know, five or ten years from now. Wow, that's so really uh, it, well. The the more interesting thing is that is that so many people, especially younger generations, have moved such into a social media aspect where they, where no one ever meets to talk. Everybody everybody basically does everything over over the internet in some different fashion. So now it's almost like we're we're taking a detour back because people are realizing that 
everything is, is on the surface. No one's actually having these human interactions anymore. So I'm very curious to see the future of how that plays out, especially maybe if you can get a larger, larger bedroom, larger, larger areas where you're spending most of your time and then the kitchen can be shared. And that's not really possibly the area that you're going to be spending most of your time. Then that, that actually could be a huge draw when you're paying $500 a square foot for, for some of these places. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, from an economic standpoint, I think it, it only works at, at in certain settings in certain major metro areas, and you know, yeah. you, you, so you have to have the right demographics. You have to have the right. You have to. You definitely have to do your study. You can't just take one of those buildings and pluck it down in the middle of, you know, outs, outskirts of Kansas and expect it to work. You know, maybe it will, but you know, I you know, I, I don't know. But you definitely have to do a lot more due diligence on something like that. Oh, that's great. Awesome. Awesome. So I also have like a little note down here. We have, we have mutual friends and, um, I heard there's like an incredible story of how you came here from Syria as teenage boys, um, with your father and your family. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, sure. Yeah. I'm, um, my family is originally from Aleppo, Syria and, uh, we, um, um, uh, my brother is the first to, to come here. He came here when he was uh, 17, 18. And, um, and then a few years after that, about eight years, nine years after that, my, uh, myself and my father and mother moved to the States as well. My, my sisters are also in the States. And so um, it, was, uh, it was a conscious decision by my father to move the family and kind of start, start sending different members. Uh, right after the first civil war of Syria and, and that occurred in the 1980s, um, we had a, a smaller civil war than obviously much, much smaller than what was going on now. Um, mm -hmm. Only affected a few areas back then, but I think he read the, he read between the lines back then and he was, uh, he had the foresight to, to say that this is no longer the, uh, where we need, we want to be and no longer where I want to raise a family. So, um, um, in, uh, 87, we moved to the whole family moved to the United States. And, uh, man. yeah, I was 16. I was 16 when I moved here. Um, and, uh, yeah, I didn't know the language, didn't know, I didn't, I didn't know English. I knew French and Arabic. And, uh, I was a senior in high school when I moved here. Wow. Uh, yeah. Talk about, uh, we, we talk about things like barriers to entry and, you know, all these like cool terms, real estate terms, but that's like, that's, you had every reason just to kind of not like not be the man you are today, not, not follow your dreams. Just, I mean, you didn't know English. I mean, even that, and you, like, and this is for our, our listeners out there, like take this to heart, like get over the, the things that you're putting in front of you. And I'm, I'm, I'm talking to myself as well. And like, go for your dreams. Don't let setbacks, don't let, don't let things like you don't know the English language, um, take you from achieving your dreams, whether they're in real estate, whether, whether they're just like getting a job tomorrow, just go for your dreams. Just, I mean, that's just, and that's an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I think you have to embrace your embrace what is given in front of you also. Yes. So if, if you don't, that's, that's, I mean, I think it starts there. And, um, I moved here and my, my family moved me here and, and I had to, you know, whether I wanted it or not, whether, however angst ridden I was as a teenager for, for, 
being plucked out of my social netting at 16. I mean, anybody who was 16, if you pluck them out of one city to another, one high school to another, they'll, they'll probably hate their parents. And I was plucked into a whole different country. So it's, uh, so you know, needless wow. to say, my angst was, was definitely uh, uh, sky high. Um, but uh, I wanted to integrate. I wanted, I wanted to embrace the American culture. I loved sort of the whole Americana experience and I wanted to, I wanted to embrace it. And, um, uh, so, uh, you know, learning English was, was, was the first priority and learning English, right. Was the first priority, not just learning English because, uh, if, you know, looking around, if I, I figured if I learned English, like all the other ESL students that I was surrounded with when I first moved here, um, that I wasn't going to get dates fast enough. So I had to, <laughs> I had to switch and figure out what is the best way to learn English more effectively so I can get more dates. <laughs> that was my motivation back then. <laughs> we, we usually wrap up the show with words to live by, but I think you just gave us some right there. So, so, so find the quickest route to get what you want. Right? Hey, man, motivation. You know, we, we each have our motivation in different stages of life. That was back yeah. then. That was my motivation. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, John, this has been absolutely incredible. Uh, I've learned a ton. Yeah, it's been amazing. Hugely Thank motivational. You. We look forward to uh, hearing your TED Talk uh, October 13th. Yes. Uh, best of luck in uh, Thank you. next uh, little while is getting out there, getting on the road, building your fund and everything else. And uh, if people are looking to learn a little bit more about yourself, your company, uh, wh where would be the best place for them to uh, maybe look up a little more on you? Uh, they can, they can, they can go to our website, macvp.com, M-A-C-C-V-P.com. Um, they can find me on LinkedIn. They can find me on Twitter. They can find me on Instagram. Um, although the only thing they'll get on Instagram is my running photos. They're not going to get much business out of my Instagram feeds. So, um, That's great. and, uh, and obviously my email is John at macvp.com. You can always hit me up there as well. Oh, thank you. Well, thank you so much, John. Yeah. Well, this is Jason and Peely. Thank you. This is Jason and Peely for the REI Foundation podcast. Thank you so much, John. We look forward to hearing more about all your adventures in real estate. Thank you, guys. Thank, thank you. you. Thanks for tuning into the REI Foundation podcast. Check back next time for more awesome tips and strategies to launch your new you in real estate.